Today, I've listened to many tales of courage and stamina and resilience, gratitude and perseverance on the path. There's so much to share, but it's always nice to hear the voice of the Blessed One, the voice of the Buddha himself. Today we did five important reflections on old age, sickness, and death. This is also a reflection on death from the Majjhima Nikaya, number 145. I particularly love this sutta because As an alms mendicant, we've continued a practice. We didn't do it in the beginning because we were quite new in the area. And it's a rural area, so for us to walk for alms would really walk a very long time. And we wouldn't see anybody, probably, or we'd see very few people, few cars. So we found out about the farmer's market in Perth. It's just the sweetest place. So this is our fourth year going there and standing in the market for alms. And at first there was a bit of resistance. Who are these women and what do they want? But we just stood silently. We didn't really want anything. We did get permission to do this. And we were challenged a few times. And that was very good to see what it's like to be rejected, disapproved of. And I thought, no, we really should try to go frequently. And now people are used to us. And we came to the market the Saturday before I left, Saturday morning, and so many people came and said, oh, it's so good to see you again. Now we're just part of the furniture. (laughs) There's a lot of love and a lot of affection. Are you getting enough to eat? Some people who miss us, they pay for a few vegetables and tell the vendor, will you put this in the bowls of the nuns when they come? We don't even know who it is, but that intention has developed. And there's such a, a field of generosity around us, which is very touching. These people are not Buddhists. They're just locals who appreciate something. They're not sure what it is, but it it feels okay. It feels maybe lovable or worthy of protection. I thought this would be appropriate, just reflecting on what it's like to face the things that we fear. And the Buddha gives an exhortation to one of the monks. Venerable Puna says, Lord, I'm going to live 
in the Sunaparanta country. And the Buddha says, Puna, the Sunaparanta people are fierce. They are rough. If they insult and ridicule you, what will you think? I will think these Sunaparanta people are civilized, very civilized, in that they don't hit me with their hands. That's what I will think. But if they hit you with their hands, Puna, then what will you think? said the Blessed One. And Puna says, I will think these Sunaparanta people are very civilized in that they don't hit me with a clod. And then the Buddha says, but if they hit you with a clod, Venerable Puna, what will you think? And Puna says to the Buddha, I will think these Sunaparanta people are civilized, very civilized in that they don't hit me with a stick. You get where this is going. (laughs) Then the Buddha says, if they hit you with a stick, Venerable Puna, what will you think? And he says, I will think, these Sunaparanta people are civilized, very civilized, in that they don't hit me with a knife. And the Buddha says, but if they hit you with a knife, Puna, what will you think? And Puna says, I will think, these Sunaparanta people are civilized, very civilized, in that they don't take my life with a sharp knife. But Puna, if they take your life with a sharp knife, what will you think? And Puna says, I will think there are disciples of the Buddha who, horrified, humiliated, and disgusted by the body and by life, have sought for an assassin. But here I have met my assassin without searching for him. That's what I will think. Good, Puna, very good. Possessing such calm and self-control, you are fit to dwell among the Sunaparantams. Now it is time for you to do as you see fit. Then Venerable Puna, delighting and rejoicing in the Blessed One's words, rising from his seat, bowed down to the Blessed One and left, keeping him to his right. Setting his dwelling in order, taking his robe and bowl, he set out for the Sunaparanta country, and after wandering stage by stage, he arrived there, and there he lived. During that rain's retreat, he established 500 male and 500 female lay followers in the practice while he realized the three knowledges. At a later time, he attained total, final, unbinding arhanship. That's what Venerable Puna achieved in his life. This is a wonderful teaching to us about right understanding, how the path can support us, and about right resort, that even if we are faced with danger, physical danger, or unpleasant conditions, we have a choice to take the high road. Venerable Puna was so confident in his own mind and how the path could support him that even though he was going among people that he knew were fierce, he was not afraid because he did not relish life for the sake of life. 
he wanted life for the sake of awakening. And so he didn't feel threatened by their fierceness. He felt rather that he could withstand their insults and not take them as something that would defeat him. I think this is really important for us to contemplate in our own lives because it's not uncommon for us to think that external conditions are really the measure of what we can accomplish or that they either limit us or enable us to practice. But there comes a point when the practice takes root in us to such an extent, hopefully, that we're not concerned about external conditions. That doesn't mean that we would do foolish things. But this is quite surprising. Certainly when I came to Perth, I didn't think people of Perth were fierce and that they would kill us. But there are so many other so many other things on the path that kill our spirit that kill our uh, sense of uh, ability or our confidence or our trust in our own ability our own strength to proceed to overcome what we're facing i've heard people name a few things like political events that should be addressed, or family situations that don't work, or even attributes that we have in ourselves that we're not happy with, qualities in ourselves that we feel disable us on the path. So here is a wonderful exhortation, and it speaks to the many layers of obstacles that we face on our journey. The first thing I want to address is when you think that the problem is in the object, the kind of practice that you're doing, or the way that we approach external conditions and the objects that we're faced with in our life, like old age or a sickness or whatever hindrances are coming up in the mind, we take them so personally that our identification with the situation, with the condition, this, is, this problem doesn't work for me. And at that point, as soon as we use that kind of language, we're not doing what Puna did. We're letting the knife, the stick, the clod, the, the words, even the words, we haven't even gotten to the clod. The stick, we're at the words, just the names of what we're hearing are deflecting us from penetrating through the delusion of the mind. If we look at our life, really, what is it in the world that we can change? Yes, the finger has to point here inward. The only real transformation that can take place is an internal one. We have to be so careful what we internalize. And we have to seek seclusion from unwholesomeness in many ways. And the Buddha gives us a series of approaches to 
establishing seclusion of mind. And of course, one of the most important ones is recognizing what hindrance is at play, what hindrance is present, really looking for it. You know, like when a submarine is is at sea and it has this periscope, and the periscope twists and turns and surveys the landscape of the water around the boat. And if it sees some kind of foreign object, then that appears on a screen and the crew examine it and they think, is that the enemy? And that's what we have to do. We have to be on the lookout for what is disturbing our equilibrium and why. Is it wholesome or unwholesome? We need to seclude ourselves until we develop an ability to deflect hindrances, overcome fear, or disable fear in its tracks. What really happens to us as we pay attention to external events is we get more and more scared. So what is the result? We're developing fear, and we're internalizing it. Then it's very difficult for us to calm our minds And before we even sit down to meditate, we're fear-ridden, clinging to life. We're, most of us, caught up with existence, wanting to exist, clinging to existence. The things that we obsess with or that we run after make us ill. So we have to really be our own doctors and examine, what am I doing to my mind? What am I feeding my mind? And whatever we feed consciousness is either nurturing or destructive or somewhere in between. There's a scale. Most important is notice what we can change, what we can purify, what we can cleanse, what we can free. And that is our own hearts. There is no being in this world even your own child, that you can free from delusion. Try as you will. Some of you know that very directly. The one being in this world that we can possibly free is ourselves. The older we get, the more urgent it is for us to focus on that project. Some people will say to you, that's selfish. I remember an incident once when I was visiting my father in his old age. He lived in Florida, and in his building there were many elderly people. His daughter shows up looking like this, bald in robes. So there were always comments, that poor man. (laughs) His wife has Alzheimer's and his daughter is like that. What's suffering for him? And one day we were coming up the elevator, and there was an elderly woman, very smartly dressed. We get off the elevator, and she stops me, and she says, Do you mind if I ask you a question? My dad's standing there, already getting protective. (laughs) And she said, What do you do for the world? You know what he said to her? He said, What do you do for the world? It was simple, but it was so true. The people that will launch the greatest criticism in our direction 
They're not looking at their own life. They're not trying to change themselves. And so when they see someone that is scary to them, they're going to attack because they're scared. Of course, my dad got very irate. I tried to calm him down. She went to her apartment and he went to his door and he said, I want to kick her with a pointy shoe. (laughs) (laughs) She doesn't know what I do. And I could never explain it to her because there's no receptivity. But he was upset because he so valued what I was doing. And he wanted everyone else to know that, to honor it. The best way to approach people who attack us or don't understand is to understand that they don't understand. To understand that they may never understand. But it doesn't matter. Because we're not here to be understood. We're here to understand. We're here to learn. We're here to open. To forgive. All conditions. Even the condition of ignorance in ourselves and in others. But the condition of ignorance in ourselves is only to be forgiven long enough for us to know it so deeply that we won't accept it anymore. We're going to change it. We're going to open it. We're going to crack it open and diffuse it and purify it to the point where we're not operating anymore from ignorance. And we can do that by recognizing moment by moment whatever obstacle there is to awakening or to waking up, whatever is arising in the mind right here and now, to notice it, to use the tools of the trade, so to speak, to develop the enlightenment factors, not to feed the hindrances, but to feed the enlightenment factors. Mindfulness. Investigation of dhammas, energy. And then we have the joy that comes from working in this way. And then a serenity that happens as a result of that. And that leads to focus, clarity, and stillness of the mind through concentrating our mental faculties. And then we develop equanimity to receive whatever the world offers and not be caught in the blemish of ignorance or people accosting us with their unskillful speech or their misunderstanding or their lack of empathy. It's so simple, wanting people to have empathy for us. Why should they? But we can have empathy for them. We can have compassion. That's probably the most wonderful training that we can be faithful to in ourselves is to keep on forgiving and having compassion, even if we're facing an attacker, a terrorist. We can be aware of the suffering that this person must be coming from to want to harm us, and the suffering that will ensue as a result of his or her violence, hurting us, putting a sharp knife into us, physically, verbally, or even mentally. Sometimes just body language is a knife. Somebody looks at you 
in a mean way, and it, it's hurtful. I was mentioning about almost being in a little accident on our way up here. It wasn't our fault, but the person in the other vehicle made a very nasty gesture at Liz, who was driving. She just raised her palms up and gave him the sign of peace immediately. And that's because of training the mind. A seasoned practitioner training the mind to make peace with impossible conditions or unsavory conditions or fearful conditions. When we're faced with them and someone is attacking or someone is insulting or being rude, we don't have to tell them we're making peace. We just have to do it internally. Sometimes it isn't appropriate or it wouldn't help us to say, I'm making peace with you. But if we ourselves just know that we look at the state of the heart, are we ruffled? Is there contraction? Is there terror? And just immediately to apply the calming, settling, breathing in and out, bringing a sense of refuge, going to the Buddha, going to the wisdom mind, the awakened mind, to accept and receive this as a teaching, as a gift. Can we do that? Can we meet with it skillfully? Peaceful resistance, I think about Gandhi, nonviolent resistance. Nations think now, nuclear warheads. This is how we protect ourselves. But actually, the Buddha's exhortation, even at the cost of our life, to face danger or the hostile force, if we can face that with a peaceful mind, this is powerful. We cannot eternally protect these bodies. They have a die-by date. The journey doesn't end when the body disappears. To die with a peaceful mind is far more important than preserving the body. This nonviolent resistance is for us to contemplate. Venerable Puna didn't relish life. He didn't care so much about preserving the body, but about preserving the calm and peace within his own citta. Through our understanding of the truth, we can know the emptiness of these formations. Through our penetration to reality, by developing the skillful qualities of the mind, mindfulness and clear understanding of phenomena as they arise in consciousness, knowing them for what they are, impermanent, suffering, and empty of any self. There is the whole path. The path to Nibbana is in knowing those three characteristics moment by moment in every condition that arises, every formation that arises, verbal, physical, mental formation, knowing the truth of what it really is. Then we inevitably come to a place of emptiness, And in that emptiness, there's a possibility for true awakening on a cellular level.
it informs our consciousness so deeply that we never revert to our former ignorance. This is a true possibility for all of us. The Buddha guaranteed it. He wouldn't have promised it if it wasn't possible. If we trust the Buddha's teaching, then we have to trust this possibility for ourselves and work towards it urgently. Even if we have to go out into a place where people are fierce and unfriendly, what we bring with us is a different kind of fierceness. It's the fierceness of the Dhamma, an aspiration to be imperturbable. We may not be imperturbable yet, but it's coming. We're we're working on it. And so we know that it's possible. Our fierceness is our determination not to be defeated, even if we feel defeated. To know that feeling as just conditioned. It's conditioned by lifetimes of unskillfulness, of ignorance, or lack of developing wisdom. Now we understand the way forward and we move towards right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That's the Eightfold Path, working towards that fierceness, that imperturbability, that right resolve or right intention. To do this gradually, we work carefully with what we've developed up to now. We don't try to fly when our wings are not strong enough. But after practicing on the cushion, we do test our Dhamma wings. And where do we test them? In the world. This is just a rehearsal. The real test is out there. So we have to thank the unskillful people for giving us the opportunity to practice and see what are we made up of? What kind of verve do we have in us? The obstacles become not personal failings, but spiritual tests, gifts. To do that, we have to remember this is a gradual training. It doesn't matter how long it takes. We just don't give up. Persevere. The right effort is to continue to abandon what is unwholesome. If it's present, we abandon it and we prevent the unwholesome from entering. So we don't give it a landing strip here in the heart. And that's through continuous, diligent, ardent, wise mindfulness. Not just mindful, but wisely seeing. Yoni so manisikara. It's knowing the origin of our suffering. It's a first and second noble truth, mindfulness. We know suffering and we know its origin. So it's wisdom at every breath. And then we know to develop the wholesomeness. If it's here, we expand it, increase it. And if we haven't developed it yet, we encourage it, we nurture it. We associate with good friends, skillful friends. We place ourselves in conditions that are conducive to the path. We stay away from unsavory friendships. 
The reason is if we're friends with people that are unwholesome because we think we can change them, that's diluted because anger and greed and ignorance are contagious. And until we have learned to really protect ourselves and seal, seclude our minds from those habits, those mental habits that lead us astray and in worldly ways and make us easily shaken by the eight worldly winds, then when we're with unskillful friends, we're very likely to get involved in unskillful activity or unskillful speech. Whatever we hear often, we're going to repeat it. So if we hear good things, we're going to repeat that. If we hear insults, then it might just jump out, even if we don't want it to, because we've been hearing it. So then we insult our own hearts. Whatever we practice, whatever we listen to, whatever we repeat, that's what is most likely to appear when we're not paying attention, when our guard is down, and we've not yet developed complete continuity of attention. So we have to be very careful what resort we choose, where we choose to hang out, with whom, and how we use our speech, our thoughts, what we even read. We have to filter a bit the way you filter your email. We have to filter what we allow into consciousness until there's enough strength and stamina to hold the Dhamma primarily as our light, our guide, in the darkness of this earthly realm. There's a lot of darkness to wind our way through into awakening. And then when we reach that place of more light, more understanding, more loving kindness, more goodwill, more forgiveness, more compassion, more tolerance, then we can venture out into places where it might not be so safe and try to reach out to people we think might listen. But don't try to convince people to practice. Just be the Buddha. Let people see how you are in your life, how you have developed calm or compassion. Let them see the changes in you. Let them ask. Wait for conditions to ripen. Be patient. Sometimes the conditions just don't ripen. So we have to accept that. And also to recognize that the world itself is impermanent. It's here now, changing, ever-changing, evolving. One day it may no longer even exist. As long as we're here in this human realm and we have the opportunity to practice, then let's use the practice. Just the fact that you can be patient enough to sustain living here for three or four days without running away, sitting with your mind without running away. Most people would think this is worse than being in prison. Consider this an act of courage, of skill, 
of wisdom and of trust. These are the gifts that we offer each other because we create a container of safety and refuge. And we do need spiritual friendship to keep going, advancing on the path and trusting the situation. So for that we have a lot of gratitude. And gratitude also is one of those qualities that will give us strength and give us the ability to persevere, enabling us to go deeper. I found this was something I wrote. This was 9-11, 2001. Though the world around us is crumbling in sorrow, though we may face danger, defeat, decrepitude, death, may we be brave and unrelenting. May we hold our candle to compassion and peace in the darkness of night. May our lives be the indestructible, inexhaustible, imminent living flame of love in the world. As the fragile sand dollars and shells that survive the tempests and torrents of the sea, let us come ashore bringing great light to all. Let us be the harbingers of peace. Samayang Dhamma Katayang Satu Karam Dhamma Sayang Sadhu Sadhu Sadhu